glad for that. So, if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 16, as we uh, talk about the necessity of the church. <clears throat> there was a story about a husband and his wife one Sunday morning, and his, his the wife dressed for uh, church, and the husband was sipping his coffee. It was just about time to leave when she noticed that her husband hadn't really moved a finger to get ready for church, and sort of asked him, what's up? With that, what's going on? He says, I'm not going to church. And she was sort of perplexed. And what do you mean you're not going to church? He says, well, I'll give you three reasons. He says, the congregation is cold. Nobody likes me, and I just don't want to go. And she sort of fired back and said, well, I have three reasons why you should go. She said, the congregation is warm, and there's a few people who like you. Besides, you're the pastor. Get dressed. It's time to go. <laughs> So when we look at the institution of the church, we can uh, always look at different things that are going on in our life, and the necessity of the church is important. And sometimes when we look at God's uh, institution uh, that we call the church, sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's even carnal, um, but it's always divinely led a community of truly uh, Christ followers, meaning that God is always at work in his church, if you are a born-again believer. So um, it's been said that it has many critics, but no rivals. We have a lot of critics in the world, but the church really has no rival. And the scripture that was read this morning uh, sort of explained that, that uh, Jesus gave the, the promise that the church was going to continue on and nothing was going to stop his work in the world. And so when we look at the churches today, we say, well, they don't have... Um, much influence anymore or the you know if you really look at statistics and see the number of pastors that um, stop preaching each day or the number of churches that close their doors uh, each year you know you could become overwhelmed with some of these things uh, but for the true church the work of Christ is not going to be stopped so um, and one of the reasons is is because it's an ordained institution of God and his sole purpose is to depopulate hell. It's really to stop people from going to hell. So we're brought into relationship with Jesus Christ, being born again, being saved, whatever terminology we want to use. But it's the vital plan of, of God is to keep those from going to hell. And so it's absolutely necessary and vital to the plan of God, the church, this thing that he calls the church. And then in Matthew 16, it's really the first place where we see the word used, church. And that sort of struck me funny when I was studying for this, because church, I mean, I've heard church my whole life, and I always assumed that that word was always there. Now, we had different words like temples and gatherings, but this is the first place where he really uses the word church for the first time. And it's uh, right before, as we lead up to this uh, great profession of Peter. And uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is, Jesus asked. And it says, they, those that he was talking to, had replied. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's a question that's really applicable today. You know, we could say that. And we have to answer, each one of us, that question. Who do you say that Jesus is. Who do you say? He said that I am. And so uh, the spokesman for the group was always Peter. Um, I love Peter. Peter, he was rough around the edges. He would put his foot in his mouth quite often. 
Uh, he'd make great professions like this, and in a little while he's going to uh, have Jesus say to him, get behind me, Satan. So you see these, these contrasting, these, these mountain peaks and um, valleys that he goes through, but he's a, he's a genuine person. He's impulsive, he's passionate, he's all these things, and, and so he makes this statement. Um, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's really saying, I'm recognizing you, Jesus, as uh, the Messiah or the Anointed One. I recognize you as God's only Son. And Jesus goes on and, and uh, continues that dialogue with him. But in this very statement that Peter makes, uh, we, we know that Peter clearly got it right. It was the right thing to say. It was, it was a great thing to say. It wasn't the first recognition of, of Jesus as a Messiah or as the anointed one, but it was probably the uh, fullest confession in the scriptures anyways to this point of, of his statement. And so once Peter makes this famous uh, confession, Jesus also confesses a few things of his own in the dialogue, and that's what we are going to look at today. So uh, the Lord's plan for the, the world and for this church started out with a, a few of these uh, fledgling uh, disciples who would be the foundation of the church. Uh, these these uh, disciples were nothing spectacular. They were nothing great. They were ordinary people that God was asking to do an extraordinary work. And we're going to look at a few of those things as this God planted today. And the first of it is, is the work of the Father. So we're going to focus basically on verses 16, 17, uh, 18, and 19. So in verses 17, excuse me, in verse 17 it says, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Sometimes Peter's called Bar, uh, um, excuse me, I to look at that, Barjona, Simon Barjona. That was his given name. Uh, he calls him Peter, which meant rock. But he, so he tells them, and I've, I've never really figured out why uh, he interchanges his name sometimes, but he does in the scriptures. So, but he says, you're blessed, because blood and flesh has not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. So the first work that we're going to see is the work of the Father. That's the primary work in the church, and the necessity of the church is that the Father does its, his work in, in, the, in the body of believers. And so in John 1.11, we're told that Jesus came to his own. He came for the Jews, okay? But the Jews, it said, did not receive him. Why? Because God really, in his, his good pleasure, had not opened their eyes to understand it. He had not revealed this truth to them at that point. Matthew 11, we'll talk a little bit about that. But they, they didn't really see the, the truth of what was being presented to them. So we understand that the work of the Father is to reveal his truth to us. And some of us say, well, you know, we can figure things out on our own. You know, I want to tell you that these Jews and these people that were following him, I'm sure there was, uh, you know, Samaritans and Gentiles also, but they witnessed Jesus healing the sick. There, I mean, there's people that are dying, and Jesus spoke the words, and all of a sudden they're up and, and doing normal things. They had witnessed these things. They had witnessed the cleansing of a leper. Like back then, there wasn't a cure for a leper. You got leprosy, you were sort of put out of town. They, that's where we sort of get that thought of leper colonies or le leper groups. Uh, they were considered unclean. They were put away. 
And all of a sudden, Jesus uh, cleanses the leper from his diseases. We see the accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, and probably more than that with women and children, with just a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. I mean, they saw miracle after miracle that was going on. They even saw him raise people from the dead. And yet, they did not believe because their eyes were not open to the truth. You know, sometimes in our life we may have said, well, you know, or we, we witness to somebody, and they might say, you know, well, if God would do this great thing, if he would do that great thing, I want you to just think about through history the things that God has did and people still haven't believed. He parted the Red Sea. He had a, a fire and a, and a cloud to follow. He did so many miracles. He stopped the rain, stopped the sun from moving. He's done all these things and people have witnessed these things but they still don't believe. And so really what this tells me about the Father's work is that it's really impossible for us to grasp God's spiritual realities Apart from him opening our eyes and opening our ears to those things. I mean, Jesus said many times in his ministry here, having you know ears they do not hear, having eyes they do not see. Well, what do you mean? You know, it's right there. Sometimes we've tried to explain things to people, right? And they just don't get it. And it's like, why aren't they getting it? I couldn't explain it any clearer to you. Well, spiritual things, it's because the Father has not revealed those things. It's the work of the Father that does those things in our life. So when we look at these things, Peter did not really deduce from some uh, logical deduction that Jesus was the Messiah. There was no real logic in it. I mean, Jesus asked the question and Peter gave the answer. And I would just say he gave the answer from inside of himself. So when we talk about this, uh, it talks about sometimes out of the mouth proceeds the issues of the heart. Okay, so that's why sometimes we can hold it together in our life as we're talking about things and this. But, um, you know, when we get mad or we hurt ourselves, sometimes uh, things come out that shouldn't come out. Well, that sort of shows the issues of the heart. I think Jesus asked the question. Peter just sort of off the, off the cuff answered. There was no logical deduction about what was going on. Um, he didn't come from a, a conclusion based on a, a, a careful evaluation of, of Jesus in his life or um, practical evidence. I mean, really, if you were to even look at the claim of Jesus, um, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of a Virgin Mary, I mean, that, that doesn't make sense to, to most of us when we think about it. We believe those things by faith. So there was no really um, careful evaluation of any evidence or, or anything like that. But it was the work of the Father that was in Peter that opened his understanding and gave him those utterance to, to say that thing to the identity of who Jesus truly is. And if we're truly born again, that happens to us. Our eyes are opened and we see Christ for who he truly is. And then the question becomes, what do we do with that, that knowledge that we now have? So as we look at things today, we believe sometimes, I think, as uh, evangelical type churches or uh, conservative churches that, uh, you know, that we can convince people to do things. And really, we can. You know, so many today believe that the entrance into the church is determined by uh, a reasonable or a, um, a rational explanation of the gospel. You know, if we can make this reasonable, if we can make this rational, you know, if, if we can answer all the arguments that are out there, 
And I used to try to do this. I'd get on different forums and, you know, you get on these different debates. If I can answer all the arguments and, and, and fill in all these holes that, that people say just to prove them wrong here and there. Well, you're saying this, but no, this is what it says. Uh, we think that they're left with only one conclusion. And that would be the truth. And yet we all know that there's countless individuals that have sat in church pews since the first century and uh, their eyes have never been opened. Their lives have never really been changed. And, you know, they've listened to the best expositors. You know, today we live in an age where, where there's excellent preachers. You can listen to on the radio. You can, you know, come to church. You can... You know, watch them on TV, you can read books. I mean, there's all these excellent resources that we have. Um, but still, we know that people are going to hell. Because coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Giving money doesn't make you a Christian. Just doing good works doesn't make you a Christian. It's the work of the Father that's in our life through the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so we know that there's countless individuals uh, that are going to spend eternity in hell, that have been sitting under this knowledge for their whole life. And so God opens the eyes. Um, just like Peter, our spiritual journey um, has to begin with God revealing himself. Nobody comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. So we know that uh, God has to have a call in our life. It's not that I can just say, you know what, when I'm done with this and this, and you know, I got my bucket list done, then I'm going to go pursue salvation. No, salvation isn't something we pursue. It's God that pursues us for salvation. So it says, today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, we need to respond to his call in our life. So it begins with God revealing the truth to us because it is he alone that makes the blind to see. So he opens our eyes. So that's the first thing that we look at in the necessity of the church is that it is uh, the Father who opens our understanding. It is the Father who gives us comprehension of the things. Secondly, in the, these few verses that we're reading today, we see the work of the Son. So in verse 18, it says, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So when we look at this, Jesus informed Peter that he was going to play a foundational role in the beginning of this church in the establishment of this new um, thing that they are now calling the church, which in fact Peter did. He was, he was very instrumental in the beginning of this church. So uh, I want us to make no mistake, however, that it is Christ the one that is the one that builds it. Okay, um, Even though he said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, it is Christ that does the building. Okay, So in the epistles it says, some plant, some water, but it is God who gives the increase. It is God that builds the work. Because if we build, we're building of hay and stubble, those things are going to be destroyed. But it is the things that God builds in our lives, that God builds within our community of church, that is going to have the power for us to make a difference in our communities and to make a difference in the world around us and the lives that we touch. So Christ is the one who builds it. And the word church means called out ones. So in the world today we have this thing, First Baptist, we call this, this is our church. Well, this is our church building, okay? Uh, the believers, the born-again believers that are sitting here uh, are the church. And we are also conjoined with other born-again believers and other churches, uh, other church buildings. That's the church that God is talking about. But he's also talking about the local body because this is what Christ has established is this local body. But it's the called out ones. 
It refers to those that are dead in their trespasses and sin. It refers to those who, who have died to themselves and have found the newness of life in Christ. So we're dead to our, our transgressions. We're dead to our, our sins. Uh, we've been made alive in Christ by virtue of his work upon uh, the cross and on his call, which really cannot be changed. His, his call on our life is there. And so we're told by Christ that the gates of Hades, it says, will not prevail against his church. Hades and hell is two different things. Uh, Hades is the realm of the dead. And I remember um, when I was, uh, quite a few years ago, watching a movie called The Green Mile. It's a Tom Hanks show. It was about people that were on death row. And they used to have the statement for the men that were on death row, uh, the, the guards would call them dead men walking, which meant they're alive with us today, but they're really dead. They were sentenced to death. In essence, that's really what the world is when we look at the world. They're dead people just walking around in this existence. And once uh, Judgment Day comes, I mean, they're off to hell. But they're really dead. And so I sort of like to link these together, and not that it's theologically always correct, but when it says the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church, I like to say that the world is not going to prevail against the church because to me the world is dead men walking. It's the lost that are out there and they want to minimize the value of church. They want to minimize the work of the church. They want to minimize the importance of the church and it flows over into all aspects of our life. So now we don't believe that the church is very important. So we don't go except when it's convenient for us. Or we don't go if we don't feel good or we don't go during this or that. And we have all these reasons maybe why we don't go. Jesus said the church is very uh, necessary, and he gave that promise, that the world and all that the world can throw about it is not going to stop it. And even though we see maybe numbers declining in church participation, guess what? The Bible says this, that the road is narrow and few are those who find it. It tells me that a lot of people profess Christianity that aren't really Christians. And I'm not the judge of that. God is the judge of those things. But it's sort of what it tells me. And we can look at each other's life and say, what's really important in this person's life? And you can tell, you know, just by the things they talk about, by the way that they act, uh, by their priorities in their life. You know, God, as he looks at our heart, will see all sorts of things. I mean, he'll look at our resources, do, you know, what we give our resources. Now, men like to do that, too. We like to look at each other's. But God looks at those things. And he's really asking that question, who do you say that I am? And if I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and if we are born again, and he is our Lord and our Master and our Savior, he knows where he sits in our life. He knows if he is the priority, or he knows if we've knocked him down a few rungs because we got other things happening in our life that are more important. But he gives us that promise that the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. So... Um, we need to understand that this realm of the dead, this, this whatever it is, the way of the world, in no way can exercise its power. So the world's power, we would say, uh, over whom God has called. If you are a born-again believer, uh, God has you in his protection. You do not, you know, it says no temptation has, has seized us, except that which is common to man, and when we are tempted, he provides a way out. See, God is always with us. There's nothing that can take hold of us or seize us because God is always there to provide a way out. And if we've received this gift through the Lord's sacrifice on the cross, it says we are part of that, that church family. So we see the, the, the uh, functioning of the, 
Father, we see the uh, work of Christ, and now we're going to see the work of the church. So in verse 19 it says this, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This gets debated back and forth a whole lot about some things. I've come to sort of this understanding that uh, <clears throat> Peter is given the authority at this point, anyways, um, to declare the entrance into the kingdom. But it relates entirely to the gospel of Christ. It isn't him that, that's granting this entrance. The, the keys are the kingdom. Or the keys, excuse me, are the gospel uh, and preaching this gospel. So it's the word. The word makes us wise unto salvation. The word is that which teaches us how to live. You know, I, I had a gentleman write on, on one of our uh, talks. I said, I get into some dialogues, and he says, you know, God's not going to judge us for our ignorance. And I said, can you show me that in the word? You know, and, and, I, and I understand the age of accountability for little children and stuff. But, but really, when we talk about, you know, people don't read the Bible, they didn't know that that was wrong. Uh, I'm not going to be held accountable for that. Well, yes, we are. Because God has given us his key. And the key is the word of God. And as we read the word of God, he uses that to change us. We hear the word of God. We can read the word of God. And we're to live the word of God. So as believers, when we spend time in the word of God, we're going to learn what God has for us. And so he gives us this, and it's entirely to the preaching of gospel when he's, he's talking about, I'm going to give you these keys, and whatever you bind on 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 earth is going to be bound and loosed and this, it's going to be that. Though he um, declares his terms, really what Peter is saying is, guess what? This is what grants entrance into the kingdom, but it also says this is what excludes you from the kingdom. So those keys are two ways. So God grants entrance to and exclusion from even the church here on life. If you're a called out believer, if you're a born again believer, he tells us this. And so later we see Peter use the keys of the kingdom uh, to open the doors to the Jews. And all this is found in Acts, if you, if you read through the book of Acts. But um, these keys that are talked about here, or at least in my understanding, is to open the doors to the Jews in, in Acts 2. He presented the gospel message at that point to the Jews. To the Samaritans, if you jump up to chapter 8, he prepared and, and, and uh, preached the gospel to the Samaritans, the Gentiles in Acts 10. He presented the gospel to them. The doors were opened for those groups to come into relationship with Christ. And once Peter did so, we really see that he plays a lesser role through, throughout Scripture from that point on. See, God calls us for a purpose and a reason. Sometimes he even just calls us for a season to do some things. And Peter was doing these things because once the doors are opened, the keys are no longer necessary, right? Once we have the gospel message, now we can go preach those things to people around. If you open the, the, your door at your home and, you, and it's not locked anymore, you have no need of that key anymore, right? So the gospel message has been presented. Uh, A.T. Roberts had said this. He said, the same power given to Peter belonged to every disciple of Jesus in all the ages. You understand that? The, the, the message that Peter preached from, the gospel message that he shared, that James shared, the ones that Lydia and those shared along the river at Bible studies, all these, these people that were sharing the gospel message, we have that same power, we have that same authority to preach that gospel. That same power is given 
to Peter belongs to every one of us that is born again. And that's the purpose of the church. That's the work of the church. That's the necessity of the church. He is the first to bring the good news to these people groups, but he's not the last one that ever did it. That was the purpose of the church, was to continue to preach this gospel message. The responsibility falls on the church as it ministers to each succeeding generation. So we look at the history. I mean, this church's history is from the 1860s. So we've continued through all those ages to to preach the gospel, to bring the gospel message of, of hope and forgiveness and of love and of grace and of mercy and what Christ has has done for us. And we continue to share that to this very day. And we dare not drop that ball. That's the necessity of the church. That's the importance of the church. You know, there's this thing sometimes where people raise their children and they say, well, I'm going to let my children make a a choice because I don't want to get them, you know, embittered towards the church. Well, that's foolish. I mean, you don't give a kid a can of poison and say, well, I'm going to let him choose and see if he, you know, If he wants to eat it, well, I guess that's his choice. No. We raise our children up to the age that they need to be. And pretty soon they're going to make their own choice. The Bible commands us as parents to train our children in the way that they should go. And by the way, even when our children reach uh, the age where they can make their own decisions, that accountability does not go away from the parent. We still train our children. And then if we have multi-generations, we're going to train our our grandchildren, and we train one another, and we have friendships, and, and we have all these things, and we continue to proclaim this gospel, and we can't drop the ball because there's too much writing on our faithfulness. And I'm always thankful for the faithful ones in our church. I'm thankful for those that, that love the Lord and, and are willing to partake of the ministries and the giving of these things. And I want to close with a story. And... We can see the application, and actually this is a a true story, but it's really got a a biblical application that I would like to share. It says, on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one lifeboat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves. They went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to be associated with the station and give their time, money, and effort to support the work. New boats were bought and new crews trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt more comfortable, they felt a more comfortable place should be provided for the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They placed the emergency cots, they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put in better furniture and enlarged the building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going out to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration. There was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club uh, initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought back boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some were foreigners. 
The beautiful new club was in chaos. Immediately the property committee hired someone to rig up showers, uh, a shower house outside the club where victims of the shipwrecks could be cleansed before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. A small number of members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. The small group members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast which they did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but most of the victims drown. Sort of a picture of the church when we look at those things. And the question is, is have we become a social club? Or are we out there trying to save lives? Are we going out and bringing in those from the highways and the byways, those that are undesirable? I saw a little statement that said, we spend most of our life avoiding those that Christ came to save. Is that the type of church that we are? And I don't believe we are. But we need to get busy in our life. We sometimes think we can retire as Christians or we can sit back and let the loss come to us because, after all, we have the answers. Sometimes we want to get them cleaned up before they come into the church because people who bring um, their messy life into the church can be a disturbance at times. But is that what God has called us to do? God has told us to go out and to preach the gospel message and to bring in all those. We have the parable that talks about the invitations that were sent out and and rejected, and he sent those out, and he says, go out on the highways and the byways and bring in whoever it is that would come. Are we willing to do that? See, we get so fixated sometimes on the externals of people and on the externals of things of this life that we forgot that God works on the heart first. And if we just clean up the outside, we're dealing with whitewashed sepulchers, as it says. Which one of us would wash a bowl, just the outside, leave the inside dirty, and put more food in that. None of us would. And so the necessity of the church is this, to reach out to a lost and dying world, to reach out to those that are difficult and hard, to reach out to those that have a ton of baggage that's going to come with them, but that's what Christ died for. Or are we like these little life-saving uh, huts that have gotten big and beautiful and no longer want to deal with the problems of others? God has called us to go out and give that gospel message. That gospel message is simple. It's the cross of Christ and what he offers on that cross. We don't need to go out and scare people, you know, out of hell. We need to go out and share the love of Christ. That's what draws people to God, is that a different life that we show, the changes that God has made in our life, and we live those things as examples. So as we close in a word of prayer today, think of the necessity of the church Think of the necessity of your role in this church and ask yourself, are you fulfilling that role that God has called you to? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for your word. We thank you that as we read it and as we live it and as we digest it, Lord, help us to put our dependability upon you, 
to open our ears, to open our eyes. And not only to the gospel message, Lord, but to those that are around us. Help us to see those that are around us, not as discarded or useless people or those that have too many problems, but as a creation of God that Jesus went to the cross to die for. And help us to share the love of Christ. And Lord, as, as we pull them in and as we share the gospel, we don't need to clean them up. God, it is you that does that. It is the Father who's going to open their eyes to the sin of their life, to the changes that need to be made. Lord, help us to stick to the duties that you have called us to do, to be those that go out in the life-saving boats and bring them safely to shore. Father, we thank you again for the opportunities that you give us each day to reach out to those that are hurting and lost. Help us to be a blessing to those around us. We ask you now in Jesus' name. Amen.